This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. This is Richard Deitch. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. One guest this week, but an excellent one. It is Ted Robinson, the longtime and accomplished play-by-play voice, now working for Pac-12 Networks. You, of course, see him on the Tennis Channel as well as NBC Olympics. Ted has called um, he's called some of the greatest tennis matches in the history of that sport, including what many people believe is the greatest match between Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal at Wimbledon. And we have a great conversation just on Ted's career. Um, he's now at the end when it comes to calling Pac-12 football, obviously with the disillusion of that conference. And um, it's just amazing when you go through Ted's career just how many unbelievable events he's called so had a terrific conversation on the end of the Pac-12 networks what that's been like for staffers like Ted as well as uh, some great tennis broadcasting talk finish with Bill Walton who uh, other than Dave Pash no one's called more games with Bill Walton I believe than Ted Robinson so Ted Robinson coming up on the sports media podcast all right as I said at the top uh, Ted Robinson has really had a remarkable career in broadcasting. His current assignments include the Pac-12 Networks, Tennis Channel, and NBC Olympics. But again, if you go to his bio, it's really, really deep. Um, He's been the voice of the Pac-12 football and men's basketball on Pac-12 Networks since that company's launch in 2012. He's been a play-by-play announcer for the Warriors, the Athletics, the Niners, the Giants. And then if you are a tennis fan in the United States, you are obviously familiar with Ted's voice. He's called... um, Every, you know, major tennis event that you could think of, French Opens, U.S. Opens, Wimbledon's gold medal match, in fact, at the 2012 Olympics, been part of 13 Olympic Games for uh, NBC's coverage. And as we'll get to on this podcast, it's called essentially what most people consider the greatest match of all time in tennis. And then he's called some other matches, which... um would be up there in the conversation for the the best five or best 10 in the 20th or 21st century. And with that, I bring in Ted Robinson. Ted, welcome. Well, thank you, Richard. It'd be a lot shorter to actually list the things I haven't done. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. It's uh, that's a good, that's a good run as we say. All right. So this was, this is interesting to me and I did not know this until um, you brought this up to me and some others brought this up to me. So November 25th, will be the last football day in the 12-year life of the Pac-12 networks. That's kind of incredible um, that this coming week, it's the end of football for one of these great historic conferences. And while those of us, and I live in Toronto now, but I'm basically a New Yorker, 
sort of look at this from afar, like you live it every day. So it matters much. It's, it's much, it has a different effect on you than it does on me. So what are you, as someone who has been, as someone who has had this for 12 years, it's been part of his life. What's, what's this week like for you? What does it feel like? Richard, it's it's an incredible uh, mix of emotion. It's been going on since the early August day when the conference basically self imploded, when uh, all schools but four just bailed and left behind Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, Washington State. Stanford and Cal have since found a home in the ACC. The two left, Oregon State, Washington State, by the way, are in a legal battle as we speak to control the asset that would be the Pac-12 network, and it won't be that name, obviously. But overriding is a couple of big thoughts. First of all, a lot of people I work with are losing jobs. And I think that's been that's been overlooked in all of this. You know, leaders of schools made decisions that I think were rooted largely in panic and fear. They were not well thought out and they jumped. But as a result, a lot of people get caught on the wayside. So a lot of people I work with, a lot of people who work for the conference are losing jobs. That's hard. All year long, we've followed 14 weeks of football. And my um, statement at the beginning of the season, Richard, to the crew I work with, which is a brilliant crew, was we're having an Irish wake. And when you go to an Irish wake, there's no nobody's maudlin. There's no mourning. There's no weeping. There's a little drinking and a lot of celebrating good memories. And every Friday night, during this football season, and we'll do it this Friday night coming for the last week, I have a little Jameson toast. And that's what we do. We're celebrating good memories because otherwise it is sad. And I've joked with coaches. I joked with Kyle Whittingham of Utah last week. I asked him, please promise me you will put me me on your ticket list when I come see you in Manhattan, Kansas. And, you know, it's trying to have a little bit of uh, a little bit of fun with amidst the darkness of what really is an inconceivable and will forever be inexplicable year in college sports. I want to, you know, you mentioned something that's, um, that's notable to me. And there are a lot of people who are going to lose their jobs yet. I guarantee during the course of the season, they have done those jobs to their, to the best of their ability. Um, it's different for you. You've had a long career and, you know, as long as you haven't blown it on Ferraris or like Malibu houses, like, you know, you should be okay. (laughs) But I imagine, Ted, you work with 30-year-olds, right, or 28-year-olds, or and, like, that's really scary that, like, they're not sure – they probably took the job thinking, all right, like, there's – you know, like, this is a good job. Like, this conference is not going to go away, so I may work for a couple of years, like, doing these games. And then, like you said, all of a sudden, it implodes. So from your perspective, um, someone who's been around for a bit – What's that been like to see, particularly I'd be interested like the younger editorial workers who you work with? Yeah, it's uh, Richard. That's a great point. So uh, two names come to my mind right away. Uh, Yogi Roth has been my football partner for, I think, the last six or seven years. Yogi's magnificent guy. He's in his early 40s and he's just starting out and he is so devoted to college football. He's been as devoted to this conference as anybody could be. And I've tried to talk with him through the year about trying to be to maintain a balance and to be calm amidst understanding yeah he's losing a job my my talk to yogi has been you'll be fine you'll find a job somebody will find you and i don't know what it's going to be no one can predict that um i worked a basketball game last night as we're talking at usc with don mcclain who i think is the most unheralded basketball commentator in america i thought this for a long time don is brilliant and he very much wants to keep working 
doesn't know what form that'll take. And of course, I'll step into basketball uh, uh, here in a week or so, and I'll do a lot of games with Bill Walton for the 12th straight year. And Bill is older than I, and Bill wants to keep going. He doesn't want to stop. And and so everyone is just is been confounded by where this is going. So it runs the gamut from the young people, as you referenced, all the way to Bill. And and the the last point I'll mention is that the Pac-12 has had to work hard to keep people, Richard. You brought up a great point. This network stays on the air until June. And so they've worked hard to keep people from leaving. It hasn't been successful in all cases. When someone gets a job offer, they're going. But the conference has really had to focus on trying to keep people on the job to keep this operation going. Ted, uh, you know, and maybe we're sort of have to zoom out a little bit now, you know, six months, a year, a year and a half. But did you see any of this coming? You know, there's always been sort of chatter about, um, you know, a, a big conference trying to, swi- to swipe other schools. I don't know if anybody four years ago would have said like U- USC and UCLA are going to be swiped from the Pac-12. But I guess I'm just trying to get a sense of like how shocking was it for you when like you learn like, oh, man, like these 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 schools are these schools are gone. Yeah. The, the initial shock was uh, was July of 2022, the USC UCLA decision. And in hindsight, maybe we were all a little naive, Richard. Probably everybody USC- was. Yeah. Yeah, USC had long been unsettled, as I'm told, by the equal sharing. It was Pac-12 when Larry Scott, the commissioner, made it a 12-team league. This was a socialist enterprise. He had USC to equally share revenue. And and this slight history, remember, Larry Scott tried to make this a super league in 2011. He tried to get Texas and Oklahoma. And the Longhorn Network was the biggest hurdle that they couldn't clear. That's right. Texas wasn't going to share. Well, They went to 12 teams. USC agreed to share. Pat Hayden, the athletic director at the time, was brilliant in allowing this to happen. Well, a lot of USC people never were really happy with that. And eventually, uh, Fox got involved and we know what happened. So that was the stunner. What sadly to me happened over the years since is that the conference never became proactive. And I think that's been a legacy of the Pac-12 a lot of schools that are brilliant academic schools with great heritage and great history, but are reactive when it comes to athletics. And as a result, what I would have hoped they would have done, go get Gonzaga. Go get Gonzaga. A year ago, take San Diego State in. Go Phil Knight and say, Phil, we want you to be the centerpiece of this league. Your legacy will be Eugene becomes the head of the Pac-12. Not, we are the conference of Nike. <laughs> um None of that seemed to happen. And and sadly, by the time we got to this August, um, the House of Cards fell. It took one school to really go. And oddly, it was Colorado, a school that just factually has not contributed very much athletically to this league. But they're the, they're the card that pulled and then the house collapsed. Last one on the Pac-12 networks, and then we'll get to some of the stuff that you've done during your career, particularly tennis. Um, one of the things that, you know, it was certainly written about by those who care about it, but you know, I've I've long um, been a watcher and viewer of women's basketball, uh, college basketball. I covered it for SI for a little bit, and um, the thing about the Pac-12 dissolving that really bums me out. It's not about football or college basketball, men's college basketball. And me, it's all these other sports where the conference was incredible. Like if you've ever watched women's basketball in the Pac-12, you know Stanford and Cal, uh, you know USC uh, now is really really good. Water polo, swimming, track and field. Like the Conference of Champions, like logo comes from those. 
all those other sports. It's never it's never really been about conference of champions because they're the best college football conference. They're not like you know the SEC is. And so for you again, as someone who's been part of this, man, like that that has not been discussed enough for me is the disillusion of all these other sports where the Pac-12. If you actually were like a fan of like Olympic caliber sports, there was no better, in my opinion, no better conference to watch. Absolutely. And you're 100% right, Richard, about the Conference of Champions. And it's a valid, valid tag. And it's because of the brilliance in largely the Olympic sports. Women's basketball, without question, has been a shape. And a couple of very quick thoughts. If you ask the coaches, the 12 coaches in the Pac-12 Women's Basketball Conference, what the value of Pac-12 Network has been, they will all sing its praises to the hilt. They think it's been vital in the in the continued growth of the Pac-12 Women's Basketball Conference. I happen to be friendly with Tara Vandeveer. Uh, I did UCLA women's game on opening night last week, and Corey Close, the coach there, was raving about what this network has done, which highlights what one thing I do want to make sure people hear about the Pac-12 Network as its lifespan ends coming up. The narrative has been about the distribution and the business model, which is not good. Can't defend it. The content and the production of our network, I will stand up and scream as loud as I can, has been brilliant right to the end. Um, and it's, I'm sad because that's been overshadowed by the business problems that we can't argue. Um, and the other part, Richard, is I think the U.S. Olympic Committee has been very concerned over the last year because think about the Summer Olympics for the United States and how many Summer Olympic athletes come from the four California schools that have been anchors in the pack, UCLA, USC, Stanford, and Cal. Yep. And what impact will this complete breakup, which is 100% driven by football, will that have on the Olympic sports? Yeah. I mean, just imagine the Olympic swimming team without Stanford and Cal. You can't. That's, yeah. that's the point. Exactly. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, I want to get to the Olympics first, and then we'll we'll do we'll go long on tennis. Um, you have uh, you have been a voice at the Olympics. I want to say maybe since two thousand, or am I off on that? Is it close to that? Nineteen ninety eight. Nineteen ninety eight. Nagano. Wow. Okay. Um, I asked uh, C- I asked CBS. I was working there at the time, and I asked if I could do one Olympic Games. I thought it'd be one and done. Yeah. They sent me to Nagano. Rick Gentile was fabulous, and then uh, I thought that was it. And David Neal hired me in 2000 for NBC, and I'm still going. So you have done you've done a ton swimming, diving, uh, triathlon. I know you did speed skating. Uh, I think at the 2018 games. Um, do you have an assignment yet for Paris? Do you know if you're going yet? I um, I suspect I am. I'm not sure I'm not supposed to say okay. these things, but I I I, I think I am. And I'm going to guess that if I do, it'll be diving again, which would be my sixth summer games on diving. And that has made me an absolute 
as expert as someone in my world can be on pronouncing Chinese names. So let me ask you, like, again, as someone who's done Olympics and done multiple sports at the Olympics, um, from your perspective, what's the challenge there? Is it preparation? Is it uh, acclimation in terms of travel? Is it a combination of 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 also having covered the Olympics? Like one of the challenges, like in reality, is just like you you have to throw yourself into something in such a you know uh a, you know three week period. But the reality is, if you want to do it right, it's the six months or eight months before that to research it to to sort of be ready. So what's it been like for you? Yeah, now it's a, it's been an incredible uh, broadcast lesson for me, Richard, because I was forty years old the first time I went to an Olympics, and I said wow. I thought it would be one and done, and I actually did four different sports in Nagano for CBS, and it was an incredible lesson in understanding what play by play people should always remember is stay in your lane. And I got thrown in in two thousand. Uh, I went. I was hired by NBC, and I did baseball at the Sydney Olympics. The U.S. gold medal with Tommy Lasorda. Oh, yeah. That's right. While I was there, uh, David Neal said, by the way, Ted, I need you to do synchronized swimming. Excuse me? <laughs> I mean, I'm in Sydney calling baseball. By the way, I need you to do synchronized swimming next week. So I went and my goodness, I had no prep. And I worked with Tracy Ruiz, who was a great synchronized swimmer, mother of Michael Conforto, the Major League Baseball player. Right. And, and I just said, Tracy, I'll set it up. And I'll say who's performing, what they're doing, and you take the why and just run with it. And I've carried it through. I did whitewater luge and kayaking in, in Athens as a second sport. Anyway, it's a fabulous lesson to play-by-play -play people. Stay in your lane. You have somebody next to you that has excelled in that sport. Tee them up. Let them explain. Each of the Olympics, I'm sure for you, um, sort of is unique. I know it was for me. Um, you know, Athens was incredible for just to sort of be there. London was incredible for me. I was in Beijing. Um, that was fascinating just cause it was Beijing, but it, I felt very much a lost in translation. The old school people who I worked with at SI told me that Sydney was the best Olympics they ever were part of. And then the older, older school would say Barcelona in 92 for you between your run from 98 to current. Is there a particular city or a particular Olympics for you that has been your favorite assignment? And if so, why? Yeah, Sydney was the best summer games without question. It was it was the wrong time of year, unfortunately. We know the, the television world, it, it suffered in the U.S. because it was September. Yeah. And that's why you've never seen, and I don't think you ever will in our lifetime, we won't see another summer Olympic games in September um, with the amount that NBC right now is investing in, in that product. But Sydney was fabulous. The, the people in Australia love the sport. Um, very quickly, I was I was calling baseball, and I was being driven to uh, the baseball field for a game. And the driver in our little car asked if he could pull over to the side of the road for five minutes. And I said, "Sure." He goes, "I want to listen to the fifteen hundred meter swimming on the radio, <laughs> on the radio." And this is Australian. And now again, in two thousand, Michael Phelps was just starting. But Australia had this great swim powerhouse, and it was a head-to-head -head Aussie against USA swimming. Um, that's the kind of fervor they had for sport. In the Winter Games, without question, Vancouver was fabulous. Yeah. I, I think Vancouver was just spectacular. And I think when Salt Lake City gets the games again, which will happen, they will match it. Salt Lake's problem was it was right on the heels of 9-11, right. and the security thing made it really hard. I remember that was my first Olympics, and I can remember, as I'm sure you do, walking around some of the um like the olympic sort of venues in the in the city 
of Salt Lake and seeing these guys with these gigantic guns. Like it just like you could not escape the shadow of 9-11 at those Olympics. Everything was sort of, at least for me, um, felt that although that was a great city, like I had never been there and Salt Lake City for me as a New Yorker is a very underrated city. It's, it was more fun than I ever expected. Like just, I, maybe I had a perception of what's a Mormon city going to be like, but it wasn't, the reality was not my perception, which was cool. And I, I agree with you. I'm a born and raised New Yorker, although an adult Californian, and and I feel the same about Salt Lake. I go there all the time still for for college, and I think it's great. But w- my memory is going from Sydney, which was only my second Olympics. Now Salt Lake is my third. We went from this beautiful, wide open city where everybody was welcoming, and Salt Lake it was razor wire, yep. concrete barriers, cyclone fencing, and it was just the reality of the world hitting us. That's right. So. I'm saying I know Salt Lake will get the games again. I'm sure it'll be 2034, I think. That's right. 2032, whichever the year sequel is, they're going to get it. And I know that they will be a great host city. Mm. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Okay, um, I want to um, move to tennis and uh, I asked you to send me... um, sort of a, like a quick snapshot of the tennis uh, matches, the big ones that you've done. So I'll let my audience uh, in on this. All right. Between NBC and USA, uh, Ted called six of Roger Federer's Wimbledon titles. He called what most people consider the greatest match of all time. That's Federer and Nadal, Wimbledon 2008. Our mutual friend John Wertheim wrote a book on that. Called Federer's win at the 2009 French. Ted called... 11 of Nadal's French Open titles, two of his Wimbledon titles, called five of the nine major finals that Serena and Venus played against each other, called four of Serena's Wimbledon victories, three of her French Open titles, called all of Venus's Wimbledon titles, because just given when NBC had the uh, Wimbledon, that sort of um, checks there, um, Venus's only French Open title, and then um, he called, um, and I'm going to ask Ted about this. I maybe to start before we get to the great, the quote unquote greatest match ever. Ted, you called Andy Murray beating Roger Federer at the London Olympics. Um, I I attended and covered the semifinal of Federer beating Del Potro. Many people believe that that Murray's win at the Olympics is one of the great tennis wins of all time because of what it meant to that country. Because as you had noted to me before we started this, that's prior to Murray winning Wimbledon and finally breaking the Wimbledon curse for for someone born there. It, th- that match is the only Olympic tennis match I've ever called, which, which is odd. And it was a gracious move by NBC. Uh, they broke me away from diving for a day to go call it. John McEnroe was on those games as a reporter. <laughs> he amazing. was broken away to go call the gold medal match with me. Al Michaels had never been to Wimbledon. And he asked NBC if he could come and host from site, which he did. So, I mean, what an incredible day. And and the difference that you mentioned is that the Olympics are a national event. It's not an individual event. So when you win Wimbledon, for example, they have a little formal ceremony on the court with royalty. And there's no pomp and circumstance. When Andy Murray won the Olympic gold medal, 
They threw a flag down on the court and Andy Murray wrapped the flag, the Union Jack flag around his shoulder and he did a victory lap around center court. And then, of course, it's the Olympics. So he stands on a podium and they raise the flag and play the country's anthem. None of those things happen when you win Wimbledon. It was a truly national moment that gave me chills. And the 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 unfortunate part of it, it is it denied Roger Federer the only thing in tennis he never achieved. He never won an Olympic gold medal in singles. The um, I don't remember. You know, I know he was at the um, he was at the match that I was at. But you know, I remember Kobe Bryant being so into the tennis. I believe at the 2012 London Olympics, and I know he was at my match. I don't know if he was at uh, yours. But covering Federer, as you had, um, you know, it's the same thing for like the reporters who got to cover Gretzky or 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 uh, you know. I don't know, maybe Tom Brady's not the best example on that, but you got Pele probably is, or Messi. Like you got to call, uh, at least at his time, the greatest player of all time. He's probably been surpassed by Djokovic at this point. But um, I don't know. Like, do you, are you given all the matches that you called? Were you able between Federer and Nadal? Like, were you able to step back, like while you were calling this, to sort of realize? I, how fortunate am I that I may be calling the best ever to do this in a sport that's, you know, a century plus old? Absolutely, Richard. And it was um, and I saw both ends of it because I saw Wimbledon and this is through the grace of NBC. I saw Wimbledon where Roger was the king of the hill and Rafa. And that's what made 2008 so memorable. That match was because Roger was the king of the hill and Rafa finally knocked the king off the top. And I called all the Roland Garros's where Roger never could do that. Roger could never, he never really even came close to beating Rafa there. Roger did win it, but that was the year somebody else beat Rafa. And and the the contrast was phenomenal. But I I, I get asked this a lot, so I often say, look, the, the, the greatest player of all time is going to be Djokovic. The numbers cannot be argued. The best player I ever see was Federer. And to watch him from the booth at Wimbledon that NBC occupied for decades and now ESPN occupies was so magnificent because I often have said Roger Federer was the quietest tennis player I ever heard. He made no noise on the court. And I finally turned to John McEnroe one day and I said, it's like watching Barishnikov. It's as if he's floating along the top of the grass, like the old air hockey games we used to play. Yeah, it's a little film of air and he's just sliding right across that film of air um, and we'll, you know, that's artistry. And I, I, again, I, I know I will never see a player like that again. All right. So I want to ask you about 2008 Wimbledon championships. I just pulled it up here. It's not like I, I'm going to remember this from road four hours and 48 minutes. That match was Nadal wins in the fifth nine, seven, uh, the third and fourth set are, uh, seven, six Federer, seven, six Federer after Nadal won the first two sets, six, four, um, again, Great books have been written on this. I think most tennis people would call that the greatest match of all time. And if it's not your greatest match, it's going to be in your top three. So, Ted, what do you remember about calling that? That's for one thing. That is a long broadcast. That that's you're on the air for five hours uh, at least, if not longer, because the match itself is four forty eight, and there's so much going on that you have to, you know, you really need to be at the top of your game for five hours. That this is not this is not the NFL. You know, you're done in two and a half. Like, so what do you, I know it's uh, 15 years later, 
What do you remember about calling that the broadcast of it? Yeah, Richard, that that's one I remember everything. You know, we a lot of us our memories go over years. That one I remember well. Um, I, I first of all remember we were in there seven and a half hours. Oh we were God. in the booth from from two o'clock London. <laughs> Uh, 145, let's say, until almost, well, just past 930. Um, I had one two-minute bathroom break. I remember that. So, and it, because of the location of that booth at Wimbledon, you have to climb past the scoreboard crew to go out to use a bathroom that's used by all the spectators. And so anyway, it, that was that was a challenge. Um, we opened the show from the hallway where the players enter center court. And someone like me never gets to go there. But because of John's championship heritage there, the club allowed us to tape the open from that place. Uh, uh, the, the rain delays were frequent. I remember vividly at one point, the word came from Dick Ebersol uh, to just drop the window in front of our booth. And the instruction came to me, just talk to John. And we did about a five or seven minute as if it was a radio talk show back and forth because we were, you know, we were regarded a pretty good team. And I think John and I had good chemistry and it was just, that was a flattering moment that instead of just doing random fill programming, he said, just drop the window and talk. Uh, and, and then the last point I'll tell you, which television, and I can't explain why Richard, but the reason television does not communicate or uh, translate darkness. It was unbelievably dark. At the end of that match, I don't know why they played the last two games. Um, and I've watched the tape a million times and it doesn't look that way on the tape. I don't know how they saw the ball and they could never have played beyond the fi finish of that match. Um, and, and I'm sure somewhere, some night, Roger, as great a person as he is, has probably regretted not saying stop. We'll come back tomorrow. Did you keep anything from that? Did you, did you have a souvenir of your press pass or your something that I, I, I had the credential sitting somewhere? Yeah. I actually asked Roger to sign. I have a picture somewhere here around me in my in my house that I asked Roger to sign of the wide shot of the court from that match, which oh, wow. I don't do very often. Yeah, um, and it was it was it was just a sporting event. And, and I'll say this: I've said this a lot because I you know I just cherish my relationship with John McEnroe through the years. I challenge you: listen to the fifth set of that match again, and listen to how little John spoke. Yeah, how little we spoke. The tennis didn't need any words or needed very few words. And I really am proud of the fact that we collectively pulled back and allowed the tennis to speak. Remind me again, did you do Federer erotic the, the, that match as well or no? Oh, my God. That's that's the, the heart, next that's, year, the 2009. Yeah, yeah. the erotic heartbreak, basically, where he was so close to to, to beating Roger. Yeah. Um, wow. Best match I ever saw Andy play. Yeah. And he, I, know I mean, he's he, hearing that. He would have match I ever saw him play. And he, he lost. He would have. Honestly, he would have beaten any other person yes. on earth on that day other yep. than that guy, which has got to, you know, um, which has got to kill Roddick over. I'm sure. I mean, it really did kill him at that point. Um, but it's so interesting. Like, I, I, you know, I think Roddick had a great career. Uh, and what's sort of in many ways unfair is if he won that match, you would think of him differently historically. Like, it really would be a different Ooh. thought, just given who he would have beaten at the time at, uh, at Wimbledon. I want to ask you about um, Serena and Venus, because in sort of checking the math, not only did you call when they played against each other, which was always kind of odd to call, just because, like, the dynamic could never be great. It's sister versus sister. It's so much, you know, sort of, that's just weird in itself. But you called Venus's first Wimbledon win, and you called mm -hmm. Serena's first Wimbledon win, which um, Serena had won the U.S. Open before that, 
But for Venus, like, do you remember when she won? Ted, like, that must have felt like this is the beginning of we. This may be the the, the next Steffi Graf, Everett Navratilova run. I remember when she won Wimbledon, and I was like, Venus Williams is going to be the best player of all time. It yeah. turned out to be her sister, but I I, rem- I remember that distinctly. And it's interesting, Richard, because the first Venus's first Wimbledon win was my first year calling Wimbledon for NBC. It was 2000. And right. it was the year Pete Sampras broke Roy Emerson's record. Oh, yeah. Right. Which now seems quaint when you hear <laughs> the numbers. It's quaint. absurd. But That's right. in 2000, Sampras won Wimbledon to be the winningest you know, major champ of all time. Well, anyway, Venus that year broke through. But this requires some memory. Serena had already won a Serena had won the U.S. Open the year before. That's right. She had jumped the line, basically. So everybody's thinking, is Venus going to do it? And her breakthrough match was she beat Martina Hingis in the quarterfinals. And that's when Hingis was at the tail end of that little three-year run that's where right. she was owning the sport. And then Venus beat Lindsay Davenport in a great final. And I was calling it with Chris Evert. And we we're in the bunker at center court. And we hear this pounding on the roof, this pounding. And I'm worried because this thing's going to fall on our head. It was Richard <laughs> Williams the famous scene of Richard Williams standing up and down on the roof of our broadcasting, jumping up and down, holding a sign that Venus had won. Wow. Breaking every every protocol ever <laughs> at center court. <laughs> and 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 that's the, the lasting memory I have. But I will say Venus at center court Wimbledon was a different player than any other court I ever saw her on. She was made for that court. Her ability to come forward on grass when that still meant something and was rewarded was unparalleled for the women. She was just fabulous. You um again, as you mentioned to me, you called uh seven major titles for Serena, four Wimbledon, three French. What um what what were these stadiums like when Serena was at her best? I mean you really saw Serena. You saw Prime Serena. Like you saw Serena yeah. basically the destroyer of of Wills on the other side. Um again, to me she's the greatest player of all time. Um and you got to see her in a prime. Basically, you got to call a lot of those matches in her prime at her best. Yeah, I mean, she. No, no question. I mean, the 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 great the what's the gift I've had in tennis is that I've seen those careers, especially Venus Williams and Serena Williams, from start to finish. Yep. And and I know Venus is still trying, but it's not going to happen for her anyway. Um, Serena is is without question the greatest, and and it's it's all almost more stunning as what I remember are the times she's been shocked. Maria Sharapova, 2004, this teenager in her first, you know, her debutante ball, so to speak, and out hit Serena on center court in the final, put Serena onto her back foot in tennis, which no one did. Venus didn't even do that. And that's what I remember. But I'll, I'll tell you my biggest memory of Serena, actually, and I didn't call the matches, but was the U.S. Open in 2022, her farewell. And I've never seen anything like the aura. And I mean, Jimmy, I called Jimmy a bunch of Jimmy Connors matches in 91 with his remarkable run to the semifinals. Serena blew that away. The love and respect for her and her farewell U.S. Open was unparalleled to the point where I was walking into Ash Stadium one night and the little red carpet area that the USTA sets up normally has five, six, seven cameras there waiting to see who comes. This night there might have been 40 cameras lined up so i walk over to one of the security guys the cops because they know everything i said who's coming I said tiger <laughs> <laughs> and that's i understood that's why there were and who i mean who does tiger show up for he didn't show up for anyone else yeah he shows up for serena
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Last one. It'll be like probably a little bit of a long answer for you. Um, to me, one of the reasons why I've always appreciated you as a tennis broadcaster, I, I think you're exceptional, is you you have you understand or or you developed when to talk and when not to talk as a play by play announcer. That to me is such an important thing for tennis, and I feel like Fowler has gotten really good at that. Is like sort of understanding the moment and le- like you said, letting the tennis tell the story. Um, did you? Like, did you have to learn that? Was that always instinctual for you? But I feel like the, to me, the, 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 the tennis callers that I have appreciated over the years, um, they're more minimalists than maximalists, right? They, 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 it's one of those sports where you don't have to, it's not baseball. You don't have to tell me a story during play. The play sometimes itself is enough and I don't need Ted Robinson to like, let me know what I just saw. If that may, it's, I, I probably could have asked that more elegantly, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, Richard, that's a great point. And, and I'm look, it's, it's a lot of luck. I fell into tennis. It wasn't supposed to happen. Um, I wasn't, I didn't grow up in the sport, so I didn't have that foundational knowledge. I learned quickly that tennis is unlike any other sport. And I've done all the ball sports. I started as a hockey announcer for goodness sakes, and never, Will you work with a collection of Hall of Famers as next to you in any sport as in tennis? And I started with Mary Carrillo was my first ever analyst. Pretty first good. match every Pretty call sweet. with Mary. And then I worked with Billie Jean King for a year and Tracy Austin and Chrissy and John. Vetus Garolitis, one of the greats. I mean, the best, Lindsay Davenport and Jim Courier. All these champions, number one players work with you. You quickly learn that the only people that are watching this who care what I say are my parents. <laughs> Everybody else wants to hear from the champions. So back down. And and the other point I'll make to your question, in 1987, a long time ago, and I got a chance to do the U.S. Open for the first time on USA Network, and a gentleman named Chuck Bennett, who was a tennis agent at the time, gave me one line of advice that was the best I've ever had, and I've never forgotten it. And he just said, remember, Ted, Tennis is the one sport you can't go wrong saying nothing. Uh, great advice. And all these years later, I remember that as if it was yesterday because it is absolutely the mantra that goes to the point you made. Well, I'll ask you one last thing, and that's about Bill Walton. Um, you know, I had Jason Benetti on a couple of weeks ago, and he shared his experience with Bill Walton. Um, you have called, uh, as you let me know, close to 200 Pac-12 games with Bill Walton only Dave Pash basically probably has called more games mm-hmm. with Walton. And as I said to Benetti, and I'll say to you, the 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 thing about Bill Walton that like cannot be emphasized enough is, you know, you may think of him as like the you know the uh, um, the you know the crate the crate the you know the Grateful Dead kind of broadcaster now who says crazy things on the air. Maybe you think of him as the guy at the waving the towel at the Celtics uh, thing. If you're old enough, maybe you remember UCLA. But as a whole Benetti, this guy's history like goes into like civil rights. It goes into like the craziness of the 60s and campus protests. Bill Walton has literally lived like 50 lives in one mm-hmm. life. So again, as somebody who has had a ton of experience with him, 
What what has that experience been like? Because he's really a unique figure in American sports history. Absolutely, just unique figure, Richard Perry. That just, it, and it, maybe it's the the edge I have is that I'm pretty close in age to Bill, <laughs> right? Yeah. And 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 you said like I said, Dave, you know, Dave Pash and I have these parallel paths. Way more people see the ESPN game, so they know the Dave and Bill thing. We've probably done about the same number of games. The first time I met Bill, very quickly, 1992. CBS put me on a college basketball game while their staff was at the Olympics. And Bill was on the game and was at Indiana, coming also on site to be the halftime host, Mike Francesa. Oh How about God. that for a threesome? Wow. <laughs> and, Bob, and Bill had said something in the on the air the previous year that Bob Knight did not like. And Bob Knight called Bill out on it. And Bill didn't back down. Just it was a, a fascinating um, development. And so we didn't work again until 20 years later when this network starts. But I'll just say a very couple of quick things about Bill. Every game we do together in a Pac-12 arena, people line up at the end of the game to get Bill to sign something, to pose for pictures. I would say at least three quarters of them are young people who have no idea what a great player he was. They know Bill from the television. Bill signs and poses for pictures with everyone. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen him talk to players, active players, and counsel them and advise them. When there's an injured player, I've heard this 25 times. He'll talk to an injured college player and say, don't come back until you're ready. He does this privately. He probably doesn't even want me telling you this, but it's it's who it speaks to what is inside of Bill Walton. Um, we go out to dinner all, after almost every game. Bill Walton asks me questions about me and my family. You know how few people of that level of fame have ever done? I'm sure you've counted that in your career, Richard. Yeah. How many people of that level ever ask you about you? Right. Bill Walton does that. Again, it's a measure of who he is. And look, as, as you know, he understands he's in the entertainment business. Our job, my job, as I say, I drive the car. And Bill occasionally jerks the wheel and we go on the shoulder. <laughs> and my job is to bring the jerk the wheel back and get us back on the road. Right. And I know that. And it, it works. It works really well together. Um, you, um, you know, listen, the pipes are still great. It's very clear that you still have a passion for all this. You st you're obviously still going to get assignments, whether it's the Olympics and tennis channel, et cetera. Um, do you, is it your hope that you can continue? Let's just use the college arena. You know, when the PAC 12 networks go away, um, is that something that's going to remain important to you? Or do you think, you know, I I'm going to more focus on what I can do for NBC, what I can do for tennis channel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't really know right now, Richard. Like I said, I think next year I'll have a few assignments uh, uh, in Paris, but I'm, I have four grandkids. Uh, my wife has put up with a lot of this travel for a long, long time. So I'm in a nice place where I'll kind of let things fall and see where they go. Um, the college thing is hard. I, I will freely admit college football, and this is something you may take into this because you do such a great job on this with other announcers. I think without question, college football is the hardest sport by now. The degree of difficulty is off the charts in college football. Roster, For, rosters are never ending. You never know who's on it, right? Yeah. Double numbers, horrible uniforms, terrible location. It's just, it's really challenging. Um, the mental challenge of that right now is hard. So, um, you know, look, I'm in a nice place where we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I, I just, the the ins, the lunacy of what's happened in college sports over the last 15 months is outlined by the fact that the last football game to ever air on the Pac-12 network will be Notre Dame against Stanford, which is now an ACC game. 
It's amazing. You can't. If I'd walked into a Hollywood office a year ago with that script, they'd have laughed me out. They would have. <laughs> oh, my God. Amazing. All right. As Ted said, November 25th, last football day in the 12-year life of the Pac-12 Networks. Um, Ted Robinson will be there on the call. Uh, he's not done on the Pac-12 Networks, obviously. He still has a full college basketball season to go, so you can hear him there. As he mentioned, he'll he'll be in Paris. Uh, we'll see what assignment he gets. NBC's very, you know, they never want to like release that early, so we'll we'll find out down the road what um, what that is. And obviously, he'll still have tennis assignments for the tennis challenge. Am I missing anything, Ted? Is there another employer no. there? Or no, you're good. Nope, that's good. <laughs> All right, Ted. Listen, that's, a, that's enough. <laughs> this is. I really appreciate this. Uh, you have a nice memoir, if you, by the way. If you ever decided that. Uh, Hit John Wertheim up. He's like uh, the master of the as told to. He, could, he does it very fast as well. Um, <laughs> I, I know Al Michaels has told me about that too. Yes, so. Al, he did Al Michaels' book, and he did yes. it very. I know for a fact he did it very quickly because John is John is a unicorn. Um, <laughs> but Ted, I wish you the best. I'm really glad we had a chance to talk. Uh, I, I've admired what you've done over the years, and again, um, you know, you're, you have an amazing resume. Uh, I, I think because you're based West Coast now, uh, not as many people know that. Uh, who are on the East Coast, like sort of where I grew up, but like the, the the stuff that you've done, and particularly in tennis, man, it's been it's been it's been an incredible run, and I uh, and I appreciate you sharing some of this with me on the Sports Media Podcast. Well, Richard, thank you, and the admiration is mutual. And as I said uh, I grew up in this era in sports where it was the USA Today report card grading system, and I really appreciate what you do in terms of delving into the why. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to um, Ted Robinson. He's an excellent guest. Um, I'll probably do a roundtable in the next couple of weeks. I haven't really gotten a chance to talk about uh, some of the uh, stories that have come down the pike from um, you know, from big viewership numbers, you know, Black Friday games coming up. Uh, I do recommend, uh, at least on our side, great piece by David Aldridge on uh, Krista Thompson's comments um, and why uh, that really matters in, in journalism at a time when uh, the profession is... Uh, is under siege. I wrote something as well. Aldridge wrote a, an absolutely better piece, um, so I recommend that. Also, certainly recommend Krista Thompson's comments. Uh, uh, she's now made a couple times on her own social media feed, so uh, absolutely worth checking those out as well. Uh, previous guests, we've had some good ones over the last couple weeks. Joe Buck um, was excellent. Jason Benetti was excellent. Did women's college basketball with my colleagues at the Athletic Chantel Jennings and Ben Pickman. Uh, so check out those uh, in the archives. Again, if you like this stuff, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. Thank you to Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.